as tambourine. <laughs> so if you want to know what to get him for his birthday or something, maybe a, an adult-sized tambourine would be. Is this the third one that you... Okay, you broke one? Okay. Um, anyway, that's fun. I'd invite you now to join with me as we open God's Word to the book of Mark. We started into this uh, last week, and we will continue for in some indefinite period of time. Uh, we did one verse last week. We'll go 11 verses, uh, 10 more verses today. So we'll just kind of keep rocking and rolling through Mark um, until, uh, I don't know, until he returns or calls us home, I guess. Um, so Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, this is page 994 in your P Bibles, and I invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would now come upon us. Lord, as we read your Word, that you would make it alive into our hearts. Lord, that we would see and experience your truth. Lord, open our eyes, open our ears. Lord, be at work in us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. Please be seated. As we mentioned last week, uh, Mark just jumps straight into action in his gospel. There's no birth narrative. There's no wise men. It's just the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we, and we shared this reminder that gospel means good news. And this is the good news that God became man. Now, why is this good news? Well, God is starting to fulfill those promises that he had made so long ago. And so we have three main ideas this morning. Uh, and if, you, if it helps you remember, if you're taking notes, um, our, we have an acronym today. Uh, it's PBJ. So the first one is preparation. The second one is baptism. And the third one is Jesus. Um, so preparation, baptism, Jesus, that's where we're going to go this morning. I apologize for not ever giving you written notes to follow along. You do have a blank sheet of paper. Uh, maybe next time it would be better, but probably not. So, um, so first, preparation. Uh, 
and John has this role of preparing the way. Now, now last week I was uh, walking past a group of Presbyterians, and I overheard someone say, uh, I, I just caught a snippet of this conversation, and I just told him, a lack of preparation on your part does not equate to an emergency on my part. Does that sound like a Presbyterian thing for someone to say? You know, I had no idea the context, but, but that's a statement that things are not going very well, right? If someone's got to say that to you, uh, things are not going very well. And as we enter into Mark's gospel, as we enter into that first century Jewish mindset, remember that things are not really going very well for God's people, are they? You know, you think back to the history of the Jewish people, and it's marked by one adversity after another. You might recall some of those some of those things, right? Slavery in Egypt, wandering through the wilderness, corruption and judgment, siege and captivity, waiting in exile. And, and now we are 400 years in waiting for God to speak a word to his people. 400 years. They're waiting for God. And now, finally, God sends what we would call the last Old Testament prophet to his people in John the Baptist. And Mark is going to quote for us two Old Testament prophecies. He says this is from Isaiah. Actually, this is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and also Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So you get two different prophets. He just rolls them into one together. Okay. And, and, what, and what does John say? He says that God would send a message, a messenger who would prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And make his paths straight. See, God really was, was preparing the way for his people all through the Old Testament. None of it was wasted. It was all a time of preparation. We can, we can see that now, right? We're on this side of history. We can look back and understand how God was working and using everything for the good of his people. But, but even though that might be true, right? And even though you might be experiencing some sort of adversity or you know someone that's dealing with adversity... Is it ever super helpful if you just come alongside of them and tell them, hey, I know life is really hard right now, but God's got a great plan for your life, so just start smiling and be happy. That's, that's not always the kindest thing to do for somebody, even though that might be true. See, and just like with Jesus, Mark jumps again into, right into the action with John the Baptist. Where does John come from in Mark? John appears. Right now, we actually know from Luke that John's got a backstory as well. John's got parents. He's got a whole, there's a whole story about how he shows up. But here, again, Mark's getting right to the point. John appears in the wilderness. We find out later, Jesus talks about John as, as the most righteous person to ever walk the earth. And, and how does he appear? Well, he appears living this very radical life. You know, it, it, he's, he's not... He's not righteous because of, of, of the way that he's living. You know, think about his wardrobe. What's he got on? He's got a camel skin coat. He's got a leather belt around his waist. He's not trying to set, like, new fashion trends, okay? In fact, what, what he's doing is sort of, like, the antithetical to the way that, that the religious leaders were living at the time that John was ministering. You think about those Pharisees and how they love to, to wear these big kind of fancy clothes and and, and, and dress themselves up really nicely and make a big deal about themselves. And, and instead, here's John, who, uh, kind of a man after my own heart, so utilitarian, right? What does he, you know, what do I got to wear today? Okay, I got a camel skin coat and I got a belt, and that's all I really need, right? Uh, and because that really what would make sense for John out in the wilderness. 
It wasn't because of his wardrobe, and it wasn't because of his diet that he was, um, that he was righteous. Uh, and John wasn't condemning people for wearing modern-style clothing either. You know, when the people heard John's message, they needed to prepare their way, and, and they cried out, what shall we do? And people came out to him asking, hey, what do we do? How do we live life? John wasn't saying, well, hey, you know, you've got to look like me, you've got to dress like me, you've got to eat like me. I'll give you the name of my camel guy, right? Um, if you want the freshest locusts, go on Tuesdays uh, to the market. He didn't say that to these people. You know, John is just living and subsisting, uh, and he's realizing that the road um, to God's heart is not through his diet. It's not through his clothing. See, John is living in a desert wasteland, but it's stuck. his life stuck out in, in sharp contrast to the lives of the religious leaders at that time. Those people were representing God to the people and the people to God. And yet John is speaking a simple message that was really aimed at the deserted wasteland of the hearts of God's people. So John, going out to visit, John was taking you out into the wilderness. And this was sort of a callback to when God's people were taken out of Egypt and out into the wilderness for preparation before they had entered into the barren, entered into the promised land. So the wilderness was this barren and chalky soil covered with pebbles, broken stones, and, and rocks. Um, I've, never, I've not been to Israel or Jerusalem. I know many people who have. I'd love to go there someday. Um, but, but that's what this area looks like. And, and John is ministering there. But it, it's it kind of striking that he's not, you know, out on the corner in the heart of the city, is he? He's gone out away from everybody, but that didn't stop people from coming to hear his message. So he's preaching this message of confession and repentance, and somehow people are so uh, inspired by this that they are coming to him. They want to know, they want to hear what does God have for us. And John's job was to make straight the paths for God's people. I know we've got several uh, aviators in this room. Anybody want to show their, raise their hand if you're an aviator, a, a pilot flyer? Okay, a couple of you. There's, there's this rule in aviation. It's the one in 60 rule. Do you know this? For every one degree that you're off course, so think of a compass, it's got 360 degrees. For every one degree that you go off course, after 60 miles, you are going to be a mile away from your preferred destination. Right from the place that you're trying to go. Now, I've got a compass here. I'm going to invite Kale to come up for me. Um, he didn't know he was going to come up. But um, I've got a compass on my phone, and I've got a little laser pointer. And Kale's going to demonstrate, I think, the difference of one degree from here to the back of the room. Okay, can you try to, like, all right, here's the laser. Just point that button. Okay, this is 293. So that's Jack right there in the back. Okay. One degree over, that's, that's Carla. Okay, so from here, the difference of one degree is Carla to Jack. Thank you. Have a seat. <laughs> that's one degree. But if you take that out to 60 miles, that's, that, that little bit of a distance turns into a 60-mile separation. Now, on the evening of March 27, 1979, there was a McDonnell Douglas DC-1030, which was a, a passenger jet. It had its navigational system recalibrated and corrected by less than three degrees. The problem was that the crew that was flying that plane the next morning was not aware of the correction. And so when they took off from Auckland, New Zealand to do a round trip flight 
uh, sightseeing flight over Antarctica. And, and instead of going down out of the clouds over the open waters of McMurdo Sound, that Air New Zealand Flight 901 instead came out of the clouds and flew straight into the side of a 12,000 foot volcano. Okay, less than a three degree correction was the difference between a once in a lifetime experience and 279 funerals. And you think how easily are our lives thrown off course? If we're very honest though, we're often missing the mark by a lot, by a lot more than three degrees, aren't we? See, John knew this, which is why he looked different, he spoke differently, he acted differently. And John came baptizing. See, baptism wasn't a, wasn't a completely foreign concept. This wasn't something that John invented. Uh, it was something that if you were a Gentile convert to Judaism, you were expected, required to be baptized. Um, but it was shocking that Jews, the, the covenant members of God's family, would be told to also be baptized. Now, what is baptism? Now, here, baptism is a a cleansing with water to symbolize God's cleansing and forgiveness of sin. See, John's baptism was a sign of inclusion into the covenant people of God. Now, a sign is something that points towards something. And we moved down to Huntsville uh, 17 years ago, and I remember driving down I-65, and the first time I saw a sign that said Huntsville, I think was in Louisville. Right? Now, the sign in Louisville... The sign that says Huntsville is not Huntsville, right? That's just a sign that pointed towards something. You know, for us, that was a sign that, that pointed towards independence and adulthood and ministry and marriage and children and all this other stuff, right, that, that later would become our lives. But that sign was not the thing. It pointed to something greater. We, we find, again, that all sorts of people are intrigued by John. And they're, they're coming out into the wilderness, not just to hear it for themselves, but to confess their sins. And why did they come out is sort of the question, right? Why would people come out to be told what to do? You know, I try to stay away from people that tell me what to do. I don't know about you. Well, because they knew that the first century Jewish tradition, right, the religious system that they had was not working. You know, centuries ago, after they came back from the Babylonian exile, the Pharisees were this group of rabbis who, who came into, uh, into being when they, they tried to make a rule around God's rules. We would call it a fence around God's laws because they saw this repeated pattern over and over throughout the Old Testament that, that God commanded obedience and then the people would stray from God and then God would send judgment and then the people would repent and then they would walk in, in obedience for a little while before they would fall back into disobedience. And so what the Pharisees did, well, they were zealous for God's law. And they said, we just want to make sure that nobody even accidentally breaks the law of God. And so what did they do? They built this fence. Right? They started adding more law onto God's law. And then what became, what had started with an attempt to honor God quickly became a system of works-based righteousness. You know, they made their own laws. They had added to what God had given them, essentially saying, God, you didn't give us enough to obey. So we've got to do more than what you require us to do. And, and so how did that lead them 
God led them straight into pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and contempt for others. So anytime we attempt to obey God without God, which is what the Pharisees did, we wind up in trouble. You know, what did God want from his people? Well, he'd already told them what he desired. It wasn't a perfect sacrifice. It wasn't perfect recitation. It was their hearts. Right? God said, I want you to love me above everything else. I want you to pursue me for my sake. I want a heart and a character that looks like me. I want you to seek justice for the oppressed and to love mercy for the guilty, to walk humbly and not in pride. And so John is saying that new life is possible, but you can't do it by yourself. There's not a new system that I can give you. There's not a new set of rules. You've got to repent. You must confess that you can't do this. And repentance really means conversion or a radical change. This is more than just saying I'm sorry and promising not to do it again. This is, this is real life-altering action. This isn't just that one degree of correction going from this way to this way. This is in that first uh, winter I was here in Huntsville and started driving the wrong way down the parkway. That was an immediate U-turn. Okay, because as soon as the headlights are coming in your face, you know you've gone the wrong way and you need to make decisive action. And that's what John is talking about. People have turned away from God and turned toward their sin and sin is just missing the mark. And, and so now they've got to turn their lives back to pursuing Instead of what we want, to pursuing what God wants for us. To pursuing God and reaching for God and drawing near to God. And the scripture says as we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. See, the gospel says that all of our efforts in themselves are not good enough. That we can devote our entire lives to good deeds and still come, not come close to earning God's grace. It doesn't mean that there's no effort. And, and the, the idea is not that grace is opposed to effort, but that grace is what really enables our efforts to have any effect whatsoever in our lives. See, John's preaching exposed sin. And when people began to see the sinfulness of their hearts, they could only confess. After I started following Jesus, um, I was kind of convicted about the music that I listened to. You know, too much rock and roll and punk, a lot of it did not have very, uh, let's just say, appropriate language. Um, it wasn't really edifying to my heart and soul. And, um, and so I, I started like taking my CDs and don't do this, but you can put them in the microwave for about two seconds um, and then it destroys them forever. It makes this really cool pattern. It looks like a snowflake. Everyone is different. And, and, and took them and started putting them on the wall in my dorm room in college. Um, but, but what started out for me is, is like this desire for, for obedience to God quickly became uh, something that I tried to, I started to judge other people for the things that they would listen to. You know, the Lord had convicted me, and then I started trying to convict other people of the same things. And I'll just tell you, that doesn't usually go too, too well. When you try to be the Holy Spirit for somebody, that's not the life that God has called us into. That's not that conversion that he wants. See, our attempts to correct our sin, again, without inviting God into the process, only leads us into other sin. And our attempts to, to root out sin in the lives of other people almost always has the opposite effect that we would intend it to. See, how do we deal with our sin? See, John would suggest that we deal with it aggressively and purposefully and bring those things directly to the throne of God so that we might receive cleansing and forgiveness and transformation. But, but how do we deal 
with the sins of others. And probably like God does, right? And how does the Lord deal with our sin? He deals with us patiently. Romans 2 says that God's kindness leads us toward repentance. That, he, that we are to bless the ones who persecute us. That we're never to avenge ourselves. That we overcome evil with good. That he's patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, con- conversion and repentance often takes time. We don't all have that Damascus Road experience that Paul had. John didn't go out and, and, and rally people up. He, he just stood where he was and let people come to him. And amazingly, they sought him out. He spoke of the need to change. He spoke of the need to confess. He spoke of the need for forgiveness. And he, he shared this with common peasants. And he shared this with the Pharisees. He shared this with tax collectors and also with tough Roman soldiers. See, in, in all of his preaching, though, John never pointed to his own righteousness. He didn't point to himself as the supreme example of anything. Instead, all of his life pointed towards God. See, he offered instruction that people needed to hear, and he helped to show them that they were living just for themselves. But he said, hey, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, because I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. See, John's baptism was was symbolic only. It was a sign of what was to come, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit was going to be this new, true reality. It was both a sign, but also a seal, a sign of what God would do, but also a seal of what God is doing in our lives. That's preparation, that's baptism, and now Jay in walks Jesus one day. John didn't live for John. He was living to point to someone else, to who would come next. How much greater was Jesus than John? So much so that John didn't even consider himself to be the lowest servant to Jesus. Remember that the most humiliating thing that you could possibly do, and it was actually illegal to force a Jewish slave to do this, would be to wash or to touch someone else's feet. According to one of the commentators, is that according to ancient Jewish tradition, the difference between a disciple and a servant was this, that a disciple was willing to perform every service for his master that a menial servant would perform except to untie his sandals. See, John was, was taking discipleship to a whole nother level. It was a recognition of the true identity of Jesus. See, John knew, even before the Father announced it, that Jesus was more than just another prophet. Jesus was more than just a better guy. He was the one and the only Son of God. See, John doesn't just offer false humility here by saying, oh, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He meant what he said. John knew he wasn't worthy. And how does he know it? He knows it because of his holiness, not in spite of it. See, true holiness always leads us to humility. You know, pride and arrogance and self-righteousness, those things that, that the holy Pharisees embody, those are actually the antithesis or the enemies of holiness. But holiness is otherness. It's a life of joyful submission to God. It begins with this realization and recognition that God is greater than we are. 
that God is wiser than we are, that God is stronger than we are, that he is perfect in his power and his purpose. And as we draw closer to God, what we do is we become more sensitive towards sin. As we draw closer to his perfect light, even our smallest sins stick out like that red wine stain on your brand new cream-colored couch, which is what happened the last time my parents came to visit us. A sure sign of your spiritual maturity is that you become more sensitive towards your own sin and also more patient towards the sin of others. That you grow more humble and also more merciful. See, over and over again, the Bible reminds us to bear patiently and to deal, and to deal gently with those who are trapped in sin because we know that if we've been forgiven, that other people can be forgiven too. And what does God offer? What type of forgiveness is this that Jesus gives to us? Well, well, he takes our sins and removes them from us. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. Scripture tells us that though our sins are scarlet, they'll be white as snow. And now we all want to know what snow looks like, right? God abundantly pardons. We can't out his grace. There's nothing that he cannot forgive. And forgiveness is not something that we earn. That doesn't mean it's cheap. It's free for us to receive, but it comes at this incredible cost, the life of God's son. So we've said this before, we probably need to be reminded of it about every day, but as followers of Jesus, um, we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know Jesus live like people who don't know Jesus, right? That's how we once lived. And it's so easy to grow angry and resentful and fearful of people as we, as we just wish that they would fix themselves up and pull themselves up by their bootstraps and clean up their lives. That if they just acted the right way, if they just read the Ten Commandments, that if they, if they just prayed the Lord's Prayer, that somehow life and society would all be better. And it might for a little while. But the Pharisees would tell you that, that adding extra things onto God's law doesn't really work. That lip service without heart service, without heart surrender, that's just a facade. But also, if you love Jesus, and if out of that love you serve Jesus, don't be surprised when, like John, your life and your message are so countercultural that people come up to you confessing that their lives and their systems and their coping mechanisms just aren't working for them. So what do we do with that? We prepare. We prepare ourselves and we prepare our hearts. I was down this week with uh, Jeremy helping to clean out a closet in the basement of the church, and I found this um, published sermon by the Reverend Joseph O. Rand. Anybody remember him? Nobody. Okay, great. He gave this sermon 60 years ago at the dedication of the Caldwell Chapel, uh, August 1963, when we built the new education building. How many of you were here when they dedicated the new education building in this church? Two people. Okay. Four people. Here's what he wrote. I loved that. I was reading through it, and, and, he, and you know, always looking for great illustrations, he gave me one. He showed this story about a college boy who was having a difficult time at school and, and sent a telegram home addressed to his mother, and it said this, Mom, I failed everything. Prepare pop. The next day, mom sent back, pop prepared, prepare yourself. 
So prepare yourself. What does this mean? Well, for John, this means recognizing your need and coming to Jesus. See, Jesus is enough. He came for you. He lived for you. He died for you because he loves you. And so how do we respond to the love of Jesus? We love him in return. How do we respond to the humble submission of the Son of God? We submit to him and we serve him in return. We confess and we repent and we acknowledge our waywardness. And we allow him to come to recalibrate our hearts. And we ask him to chart the course of our lives. And then we start to walk humbly with him in a life of continual repentance. Because guess what? You're going to continue to sin when you love and serve Jesus. And he's not going to be surprised when you do. It doesn't give us a license to sin, but this gives us a liberty from it. And then we'll see Jesus. And we'll see him everywhere. Remember in Matthew 25, what did Jesus say? Whatever you do for the least of my brothers, you do for me. When you, ha- when you are unnaturally loving, when you are unnaturally caring for other people, when you grow sensitive to the needs and, and concerns and cares of the people around you, that, that's the sure signs of that new spirit life breaking through that old life of sin. Now, why was Jesus baptized? It wasn't because he needed to be forgiven, was it? But it was to validate the ministry that John was doing. You know, to show, hey, John knows what he's saying, so listen to him. It was also to be a model for us, to show us our need for cleansing and forgiveness. But mostly it was to affirm that he was going to be the one and the only source of forgiveness and transformation in life. Only through his perfect perfection. Lived a life that perfectly pleased his father. And only through his humble submission, becoming that once and for all sacrifice that we need, would we be able to receive God's offer of mercy and grace. Because of Jesus, we're not just cleansed of our sinfulness, but we are counted righteous forever. So P, prepare. Jesus wasn't an afterthought. He was God's plan A. There never was a plan B. God was prepared to deal with our sin. And baptism, not just a sign, but also that seal of our inclusion into God's covenant family through J, Jesus. Because of his life and death and resurrection, we can be with him and we can live like him. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are humbly coming before you, Lord, acknowledging that that we are often wayward in our lives. Lord, it's usually more more than by just a degree or two. And Lord, for, for those of us who haven't yet yielded to Jesus, I pray that you would be at work. Lord, that you would show them their need. And Lord, for those of us who have, God, we just come to you continually confessing and repenting and praising Jesus because of what he has done for us, because he has made the way for us to walk in the way of life. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for his great mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone.